So Money Episode 964, Amanda Miller Littlejohn, personal branding expert and author of Package Your Genius. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I was really kind of sheltered from the real world, I guess you could say. Never had any financial problems. Never had anything I wanted that my parents didn't give me. So to not be able to pay my rent was like foreign to me. I didn't know that they would come knock on your door and and threaten you with letters. I just didn't know that. Right. So get this letter. Call my dad. I remember clear as day. I was in my apartment and I called him and I said, daddy, Hey, so when are you sending the rent? (laughs) Hey. And he says, I'm sorry. I ain't got it. And that was all he said. For many of us, the day we get cut off from our parents is a money moment, right? Some of us may have had experience with this. Others, it's completely foreign. Wherever you are in your financial life, I think you're going to appreciate today's interview with Amanda Miller Little John. The story she just shared was many years ago in college. Fast forward to today, she is a top nationally recognized expert on personal branding, and she's the author of the book Package Your Genius. Amanda is an idea oven, a brand problem solver, and creative powerhouse who works at the intersection of public relations, journalism, marketing, and social media. How and why she built her business is a very personal journey. We connect all of the dots on today's episode from her experiences with money and her parents to later in her marriage and the financial complexities that inspired her to finally take the reins in her financial life. Here is Amanda Miller Littlejohn. Amanda Miller, Little John, welcome to So Money, my friend. Thank you, Farnoosh. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I've known you for some time now. You've been joining us at our Pitch Please workshops. It's been wonderful to get to know you. I'm always so impressed by women who are working in your space as a brand marketing expert. You're such a nationally recognized expert on personal branding. You're the author of the book, Package Your Genius. You are the founder of Package Your Genius Academy, which you describe as being a hybrid of brand coaching and PR for your clients. Who are your clients typically? My clients are typically high achieving women who have really been working hard in their fields and they typically have had a heads down, nose to the grindstone approach, and they've gotten really great results either for their employer or their clients. And they haven't stopped to take the time to really assess their own visibility and how they're showing up in the world. And Mm -hmm. I help them kind of step out from behind the desk or behind, you know, whoever they're working for on behalf of and start to really amplify their personal messages and get themselves out into the world. Yes, because narrative is the thing, right? Who you are is ultimately your weapon, your secret weapon. And, and, Absolutely. and But who you are, like, how do you actually distill that? I know we don't have a lot of time with you, but if for people listening who want to just get going on that exercise, how do they start? 
So just a quick way for you to think about it. I always take my clients through a process where we look back over as much history as they can remember. We can look at it from a professional lens or we can look through the personal lens. And and typically my ideal is to look at your entire self and your entire life, who you've been professionally and personally. And we go back as far as you remember. And we look through the things that have energized you in your past, as well as the things that people have thanked you for and asked for your help from. So the energizing piece, that's the question that only you can answer. And it typically shows up in different ways, both personally and professionally, but it's the same thing. And the things that people thank you for and ask for your help with That's how you can gauge how the world is receiving value from you and how the world sees you. So we kind of put those two things together and we come up with a really clear picture of who this person is and who they've always been. Well, that's a great transition for us because I want to get to know you more, Amanda, and who you are and who you've always been. And I know that you prepared me a little bit for this interview, sharing a few anecdotes, quick tidbits about your past. And it seems like a running theme in your life, whether that was something that you experienced or your husband or your father, all of you experienced a layoff at some point. I've been on the receiving end of a layoff. And I think it's interesting because as a personal brand expert, you know, what happens when you get laid off is I feel like you kind of lose your identity for a moment. Like you, we associate so much of our self-worth and identity to what we do and where we work sometimes that when that is no longer the case, um, there's a bit of a lost at sea feeling. And so how do you reclaim that identity? And so let's use yourself, your own personal story, your own narrative to, to walk us through that. So first it was your father's layoff and then your husband got laid off. This is not the same year, but no, <laughs> you had a layoff. Um, well, your father's layoff, I think, was pretty uh, pivotal for you simply because what it meant for you was a loss of financial resource access. Right. How did you manage right. that? Well, so the first piece is I was in college when my father was laid off and he had always been a very resourced individual, right? So my entire childhood growing up, he had a very good job. He's a very successful engineer and he also had a small business on the side. So I never really wanted for anything. We always had whatever we wanted, always drove new cars, you know, had a typical middle-class Southern life. And so the idea of needing something from my dad and him not being able to give it to me was really life-changing, life-shifting and eye-opening because I was the youngest. I was the baby. I only have a brother, but you know, my dad and I had a really special relationship. I was a daddy's girl and he had never really told me no. And I remember I was in college and I had a scholarship, a full scholarship except for housing. And so our deal was, okay, you go to school and I'll pay your room and board. And once I was a junior or so in high school, I was off campus living in Washington, Washington, DC, renting apartments. And I remember, um, my rent was due and my, my part was to go to school, make a grades, you know, be Amanda. And his part was to pay my rent. And I had noticed that the rent kept coming later and later. And, um, and this is like a couple years into the layoff, right? So it's not like he got laid off. And then the next day he's like, I, I don't have your rent. This was a few years later. So 
I remember calling him because it was like the 10th or something. I'm like, hey, I need to pay my rent. They put something on my door. Like I'm scared. And remember, this is someone who has never had any kind of like I was really kind of sheltered from the real world, I guess you could say. Never had any financial problems, never had anything I wanted that my parents didn't give me. So to not be able to pay my rent was like foreign to me. I didn't know that they would come knock on your door and, and threaten you with letters. I just didn't know that. Right. So get this letter. I call my dad. I remember clear as day I was in my apartment and I called him and I said, daddy, hey, so when are you sending the rent? Oh, <laughs> like, no. Hey. And he says, he says, I'm sorry, I ain't got it. And that was all he said. And in that moment, I remember standing there like, like, what do you mean? Like, like he could have been speaking Greek. What do you mean you don't have it? You've never not had it. And that was all he said. And he got off the phone. And so I, yeah. And I remember just kind of really, you talk about feeling lost at sea. I think that was the moment I grew up. At this point, I was over 20. I wasn't 13, you know, I was in my 20s, early 20s. And I realized that I could no longer be this baby, this daddy's girl who expected people to bail her out and to rescue her. And I was an adult. I was going to have to figure this out. And that's essentially what I did. I got to work. And I think what you said about layoffs being a theme in my life, they typically light a fire under me and ignite me to dig deep and find a strength and a resourcefulness that was always there, but that I just didn't have to use because I've I've been being pampered, right? Like I'm coasted. Well, what about this relationship with your dad? I feel like, I mean, I can understand that he may have felt embarrassed and didn't really know what to do, but don't you think it deserved a little bit of a heads up? Were you bitter? I feel like, how did the relationship move on from there? Um, I think there definitely was a sense of, um, well, I can only suspect there was a sense of shame because again, you know, you talk about what layoffs do and how it shifts your identity. So his identity to have to change from being the person who always has it to having to say that you don't have it. And I think, um, it did shift our relationship, I did not resent my dad or feel, um, how do I put this? I didn't feel angry. I wasn't a spoiled brat. I was just taken care of. And I think, you know, I understood him enough to know that for him to get to the point where he is telling me he doesn't have it, he probably didn't have it a year ago. You know what I mean? But for him to finally admit to me that he doesn't have it, he must really not have it. And so mm-hmm. um, I didn't resent him. Sure, I w- would have enjoyed a heads up, but I think he did the very best thing for me because he, look, he knew I was smart. And the thing we always talk, my mom and I talk about this, my dad has been, he, he passed away in 2015, but the things that he kind of gave me as a legacy are things that you could never, you know, buy at the store. That resource you know, the way I saw him work, his work ethic, you know, his smarts, his street smarts, his book smarts, mm-hmm. um, and his just his ability to figure a situation out. And I think at that point in his life, like you talk about layoffs, and I don't think we talk enough about 
how layoffs can shape your mental health. Uh, and depending on the age that you're at when it happens, you just may not have the resolve to get up and try again. You know, I'm sure that's not the first time my dad was in a tough spot or had to reinvent himself. But at this point, he was in his 50s and I'm, you know, you kind of lose that <laughs> hunger. And his his youngest child is basically an adult in college. And so um, he passed the baton to me to take care of myself. And I think it was the best thing he could have done because really at no point since that moment have I ever relied on anyone to take care of me. Yes. And even when your husband was laid off years later, you wrote that it was more just a reminder to be in more control of your financial life. You had a child at that point. So you Mm -hmm. just, um, really got focused on taking care of yourself financially. And then you got laid off as a new mom. How did Mm -hmm. that transition end up? I know that that's also when you got the bite to become an entrepreneur. So that was an interesting story. I remember I was working, I had followed my dream to become a long form narrative nonfiction journalist. Like I wanted to write these long Oh boy that would appear in the New Yorker or the Atlantic. And I'd gotten a fellowship to Northwestern to do a journalism uh, program. And after that, I got an internship at the Washington City Paper, which is, you know, the type of a springboard to that sort of writing and got hired on as a staff writer, but wasn't making a ton of money. And then when I got pregnant, it was like, oh my God, you know, this throws a wrench in the whole plan. Ended up having the baby. It it kind of coincided with the paper going through a big shift. The owners of the paper had changed and they were laying off full. I remember they laid off the entire art department and they were like, Oh, we're just going to have the, oh my the sister paper. Yeah. Like the whole art department, this, the whole we're just going to use stock photos, you know? Now. Yeah. Yeah. Like art, we don't need it. <laughs> so I kind of saw the writing on the wall because I was one of the last people to be brought on as a staff writer. So I was one of the juniorest staff writers. And um, I honestly, Farnoosh, was, my heart wasn't really completely in it because I felt like to do the type of journalism that I wanted to do and get paid what I wanted to get paid I just felt like it was going to take too long. And now I've got this baby. So I had already been thinking about exit strategy or other things that I could be doing to earn income. And once I had the baby, I remember I was on maternity leave and um, the paper, it it was literally every three months we'd have these staff meetings and our editor would say, okay, I have like, I'm getting the word from corporate that I have to like trim two more people. Oh my God. And literally people would volunteer or he would have to, you know, think through what wasn't essential. And so I kind of knew that it was going to come to that. And I remember he called me and he said, you know, I have to make another round of cuts. I just want to know where you are. Obviously he can't fire me. I'm on maternity leave, Mm. but I knew there were people on staff and, you know, we were a small paper, so we were like a family. There were people on staff that just like lived and breathed that paper. And I just didn't live and breathe it like that. And I wanted to make more money. And so I actually gave my spot up and kind of took the layoff uh, because I knew, even though I was on maternity leave, I knew that I wanted to be put in a position to make more money. I knew that even if I stayed there and advanced and even became like a senior writer, 
I was I probably would only be making forty thousand dollars a year. And that just was not I needed more money faster than that. And so um, that was really how it all shook out. And I remember shortly after that, my husband unexpectedly was laid off, too. So then it got real. Right. It was like, okay. I am letting this job go, but he, his job is gone and we have this baby and no one, no one has a job. And so again, that fire was just ignited in me. And uh, even though it was the recession, I just started in the pavement. Yeah. Like this was two unemployed people, a baby and a recession. recession. And a recession. Yeah. A great recession at that. (laughs) How long did it take you you to find a job? Even you saying that, Back to me, Farnish. I'm like, throw anything at me. Yeah, right. <laughs> you are. You're. You're. You're you, just. You young people. You, yeah, you, no one's nothing's gonna no break idea. your stride. But really, yeah. how did you find your next gig? And so how I, did you make? How quickly did you start making money? And what was that job? So it wasn't a job. I decided, and it really shaped my perspective. So the fact that I was laid off, my husband was laid off. Everyone. I mean, I walked away from my job, but my husband's job. They knew he just had a baby. Literally. I remember he came home. Our baby was three weeks old when he was laid off. And so to me, I said to myself, okay, if I can lose my job or I can be working at this company that is not stable enough that I feel comfortable growing with them. And now I don't have a job. My husband um, is working at a company and they, they know he just had a baby. Like people are bringing in baby gifts and they can let him go. I cannot Again, I can't rely on my dad and I cannot rely on an employer to take care of me. So I'm going to bet on me. I'm going to rely on Amanda because I know I'm not going to let me down. My newspaper situation was that they just weren't solvent. They didn't have the money to float that many employees. My husband's situation was they felt like he wasn't a good fit, so they let him go. But no one was thinking about us as new parents, as a young family. No one was concerned enough about us to just keep you know, paying us. And so I decided that, um, I was going to go out and try to find my own source of income. And I remember sitting myself down very much the branding coach that I did not know I was. I set myself down and I thought about my skills and what I had and who needed what I had to offer. And I have always been a strong writer. I've always had a gift at communicating for people um, on their behalves. So hearing what people are trying to say, but reading what they're writing and, and seeing the disconnect or seeing how they're positioning it to other people and seeing the disconnect. So really translating what they're trying to say so that other people can understand it. And I remember I made a list of um, small PR firms that might need writers. I made a list of everyone I'd ever interviewed, just who, who did I have in my Rolodex? And I created a little message and I just emailed everyone I knew to say, you know, this is who I am. This is what I have to offer. I can do writing for these types of projects. I'm available on a project basis. So you don't have to you know, worry about health insurance and all of that. Um, and I just started sending things out. I remember even looking up all the small public affairs and communication shops in the DC area. And I cold called, (laughs) I was calling people saying, Hey, you know, I'm a writer. (laughs) I mean, I'm like, would I do that now? Would I have the nerve to do that now? I don't know, but I was hungry literally and figuratively. And so that was how it all started. And I remember 
one of my one of the subjects that I had reported on while I was at the paper, I emailed her my message and she said, hey, Amanda, you know, um, I'm in Atlanta right now and, and I don't have anything for you. But a friend of mine used to work with me, her and I. I had a little communication shop, you know, a while back, and now she's the director of communications at the Urban League, the the Greater Washington Urban League. So she may need you. So I'll put you in touch with her. She put me in touch with her. And I remember I went to meet this woman and um, we met and talked and I had a little document that I had put together that talked about what I did and what I could offer. And she just kind of sized me up and said, well, you know, we don't really have anything. And, you know, are you sure you want to do this now? You're awful young. You probably are too young to be trying to do this. I tried to have a business like this and I wasn't able to make it work. And you should probably look for a job. She sends mm-hmm. me home and I'm like, ah, and it, for whatever reason, my spirit wasn't broken. Uh, I just kept sending out messages, emails. This same woman calls me back two weeks later. And she says, our director of housing is uh, um, flooded with work. She needs some help. Can you come in and just meet with her to see if you can help her? Long story short, came back in, met with the director of housing who became, I mean, she. I still speak to that, that woman to this day. I love her. And she's moved on since to several other jobs and she's hired me for different things. But she hired me and gave me my first contract. And I remember my monthly retainer for the Urban League was more than um, three times my salary as wow. a newspaper reporter. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was like the big, like, and I'm at home with the baby. I make my own hours. As long as I got my work done, it was fine. And I just grew from there, started networking, meeting other people who needed help. And that was really where everything started. Amazing. Ah, I love that story. And yeah. uh, I mean, give us, <laughs> I feel like, it happened kind of quickly for you, but you also worked so hard for it. And I think what mm-hmm. I'm also learning is that we cannot underestimate ourselves. Um, nope. But it's so easy to when you've literally just been laid off. Someone has said mm-hmm. to you, we don't value you enough to have you work here. So how do you then muster up the confidence to believe in yourself um, to go out there and, and get the work? Now, I would not necessarily recommend this. And I, a part of me is like, wow, I don't think I'll ever have that fire again. But looking in the face of this tiny person who is looking up to me like I am the world and can do no wrong and they need me. That was the motivation that really took all of that kind of fear and ego off the table. It wasn't about my level of comfort or how embarrassed I was to make cold calls or how um, humble I've had to feel or even um, how confident. It wasn't about confidence. Farnoosh, it was about providing and my back was up against the wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I was not going to let that baby go hungry. No. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're not saying everyone go out and have a baby. Uh, but no, not saying that there is something that definitely was a trend during the great recession, which was a necessity entrepreneurship, right? Mm -hmm. People who, 
well, you know, flirted with the idea of being self-employed, but then got laid off. And it wasn't about maybe or if or can I. It's I have no other choice but to find Mm -hmm. my own paycheck and to be Mm -hmm. in control of that paycheck. I love that. You have this belief, uh, Amanda, which is that women of color cannot afford to be invisible. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Well, when I think about the women who typically come to me and need support with their personal brands, um, they are most often the most hardworking, excellent, delivering people you will ever meet, but they do not toot their own horns. And what ends up happening is either their hard work is overlooked um, or they just are not on pace to make those incremental um, strides that they could be making if their visibility was higher, right? So when you think about um, working a job, even if you are on pace and you're getting your promotions on schedule, um, you can really build a good life for yourself. But if you're someone who's doing great work, but you're not speaking up and you're hiding and people don't know what you do, you end up not getting promoted, not getting advanced. And then when you look back over a decade or 20 years of your work, the lost income that you have lost just because you haven't made yourself visible enough so that people know exactly what you're doing and can um, compensate you accordingly. It's like, I think we, we, we all miss the point that we only have a window of our lives where we are going to be working and earning income. And so if you squander those and you're not making the most of them and kind of making as much money as you can, you're really screwing yourself over in the long run. And I think women of color, particularly because, you know, we look at the wage gaps, right? The wage gap for white women is what I can't remember the number, but it's, it's, it's lower than what a white man would make, but for black women, it's even lower. And for Hispanic women, it's even lower than that. And so when you think about earning power and earning potential, we're already behind in terms of compensation on the same level of our white peers. But then when we opt out of being visible and letting people know what we can do, we're setting ourselves back even farther. So we just, we literally cannot afford it. (laughs) We can't. You're absolutely right. Because the risk, the the reality is, is that for people of color, women of color, you're starting out in the workforce already at a financial disadvantage, which is Mm -hmm. – lower pay often because of systemic problems, racial discrimination, gender discrimination, all of it. So yeah, the least that we can do is to be visible, know our worth, ask for our worth, not allow the system to completely run us over. Right. Exactly. All right. This question comes from our sponsor, Chase. Amanda, and it is, what is something that you practice in your life, a financial ritual, or perhaps it is something that you utilize like an app or a website or a step that helps you create financial security in your life? Um, One thing that I do, and I heard this from another amazing podcaster, Mylie Teal, who has the My Tachu Yeah, podcast. she's been on this show. I love her. And she gives such amazing advice for women 
And, but something that she said, and I may be messing it up, but I'll just tell you what I took away from it is she says for your monthly savings, you should increase it by 10% at least annually if you can. Right. And so I remember one year I was setting aside a certain number of dollars and this is just in, in the growth year. So my business was getting off the ground, but it really wasn't uh, off the ground yet. And um, I heard her say that and I said, well, I can increase 10% won't kill me, right? So I increased it by 10% and I really saw my savings grow faster. And then I actually ended up doubling it at one point because I saw the power of it. Mm -hmm. But saving is definitely a ritual that I take into account, especially as a small business owner. You know, you have to be on top of your savings just to make sure that you are allocating enough of your revenue for taxes and for expenses that should come up if you need to grow your business or or take on something. But assessing my ability to save on like a semi-annual, annual basis to see, can I increase the percentage so I can reach my goals faster would be one of my rituals. Do you want to retire early? Is that a goal? I don't necessarily want to retire early, but to be honest with you, I am very um, realistic about the nature of the type of work that I do and how long I can realistically do it and be, I guess, attractive to the audience that needs the type of work that I do. So my plan isn't so much to retire and stop working altogether, but it's to phase um, my business out. So, you know, I'm doing visibility and PR and personal branding work, but I personally believe that even though I don't work for a company, ageism within that space is very real. And so I know that I am, um, I'm youthful enough and young enough Mm -hmm. to kind of stay on top of the trends now and to be attractive to people who need this information now. But 15 years from now, that may be the case. That may not be the case. And so I'm thinking about other things that I can be doing with my talents and skills, maybe having other people run that part of and be the, the outward facing part of that company. Who knows? In 15 years, maybe everyone will understand personal branding and people won't need it. Who knows? I don't know. um, Yeah. So that's kind of how I'm seeing it. It's good. You got to be nimble. Um, Exactly. And I want to mention your book again. It's called Package Your Genius, Five Steps to Build Your Most Powerful Personal Brand. Um, If you could add a sixth step, what would it be? Ooh, a sixth step would be to believe in your power, really. (laughs) And I think we've talked about that. Every time that I have been kind of with my back up against the wall and in a position where I wasn't sure that I was capable of pulling through for myself or my family. I mean, once I turned on that belief and it was kind of a non-negotiable and I turned it on, I won. Mm -hmm. And so every time I really believe in that and believe in my power and believe that the ideas 
that have been given to me, that have been placed in me, were given to me for a reason, and it's my duty to carry them out, and that I am equipped with everything I need, I win. And so that would be the sixth step, to believe in your power. And equip yourself. I like that. Absolutely. Um, I was at a workshop yesterday, a writing workshop, because I'm thinking about writing more and writing a book, and I just loved to be, you know, it was like an opportunity to go and just write for a day. And somebody in the in the room wrote said we were reading our things aloud and someone said you can in, in life there are two paths you can claim or you can be claimed hmm. isn't that interesting that is interesting another way to look at it is like you can be in the driver's seat or you can be driven somewhere exactly and i think <laughs> that's that's really like what i want women especially to understand about visibility and personal branding when you're intentional about raising your visibility and telling your story and letting people know what you can do and that you're here, you are now in power to make changes in your life. It's not about who's going to give me a job or give me a contract. It's about what am I going to make happen? Yes, yes, yes. Now we haven't really even touched on even earlier, earlier, earlier in your life. I know that your mother was also very influential. You watched her, as you said, scrape coins off the floor just to buy food, a much different economical state than your dad. And so what did that signal to you? So that was really about power. And so the coins, I don't know... Those five-gallon water jugs, we would always have water delivered to our house um, because we had like a water fountain. So those jugs that you see in the offices or you used to see them in office buildings, the big five-gallon jug, we would always put our spare change in um, one of those. Back then, the jug was glass, so it wasn't like the plastic kind. So it was like, you know, big hefty glass jar. Put spare change in that. And my parents kind of went through a bitter divorce. And I think at one point my mom was, um, she thought she was going to be a stay at home mom, housewife type person. And when things with my dad turned a page, um, he, he really showed her, I guess, or tried to show her, um, his power. He wielded his power financially. So he would give us money, of course, but if she needed things or she needed money to go to the store, um, you know, he was mad at her and they weren't in a good place. And so it was kind of like you have to ask for money because she wasn't working. And so I remember seeing her do that. And that really stuck in my head as a woman, how I never wanted to be in a position to have to ask a man for resources to do anything that I want. Like I want to be in control. And in fact, that was actually one of the things my dad always said to me was that, you know, make sure that you study, that you become someone so you can see about yourself and you're not dependent on a man as, you know, my mother was in some degrees dependent on him. But I have to give her tremendous credit because after their divorce, she really turned her life around and she studied to become a statistician. She was really good with numbers and she still is. Um, And she ended up getting a job from the state of Tennessee and she continued to get promoted. And she really became, she made something of herself. She became a boss in her own right. And she retired a couple of years ago. She has a great pension and she has a great life in retirement. But I really saw her kind of in the same way he told me, I don't have it. Right. 
um, that was the message that he sent to her, but obviously in a much more malicious and I guess emotionally abusive way. But when she realized she couldn't count on him or anyone else to quote unquote save her, um, she turned her circumstances around. And that's another another example I'm really proud to look at just to see like you can change your story. You don't even mm-hmm. if you weren't prepared to do this. You have power. And I remember watching her, my brother and I watching her because she had to take these tests and different things to qualify because she was doing research and statistical analysis for um, the Department of Labor. And she had to take refresher statistics classes and literally looking at those books, we were like, what is this? What is this math? And she studied and passed her test. And we were all like, mom, did you pass your test? Yeah, did you pass? Did you pass? And we knew that there was so much on the line. If she didn't pass, she wouldn't get this job that would put her on this new path um, to be able to see about herself and to see about us in her way. And so that was really powerful to see her, her turn her entire circumstance around, even though she had gotten lax and I guess decided, okay, I'm going to let this person take care of me. And then when they defaulted, um, she had to, to create a new story as a woman. You can always change your story. I love that. That's really powerful and true. It is true. Amanda Miller, Little John, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again in the fall at our next workshop. And thank you for all the work that you're putting out in the world and helping women help themselves. Thank you, Farnoosh. I'm excited to see you again. Thank you so much for having me on So Money. This has been a dream come true. I've been listening to you for years. Oh my so to gosh. be able to share stay, the audio stage with you is, is awesome. So thank you so much. Thanks so much to Amanda for joining us. Her website is amandamillerlittlejohn.com. Her book and podcast is Package Your Genius, and you can connect with her on Twitter at Amanda Mogul. All this information is on somoneypodcast.com, where you can also download the transcript and click on Ask Farnoosh and leave me your questions for our Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and I hope your day is so money.